listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. James. We're getting down close to the end of the book of James. In fact, I think we'll have only one more after Easter, and then we'll be ready to move into our next series, which will carry us over into the summer. What we're going to do beginning after Easter and after we're done with James, we're going to look to the book of Acts. And basically, we're just going to go through the book of Acts as far as we can uh, up until fall. We're not going to be in any hurry. We're not going to try to follow any kind of of series layout. We're just going to kind to just look at what God was doing in the early church and we're going to take our time and we're not going to be in any hurry. And if we get to the end and we've got three chapters left to go, we're not going to, to get all crazy about that because next year after Easter, we'll need something to do. Then we'll jump back into Acts. So it's a good way to just kind of fill the year out, especially as we get into summer vacation time. We just want to kind of uh, be relevant for everybody who's here every week. James chapter five is where we're at today. James really speaking to believers that were spread out. They were Jewish believers in Jesus. They were spread out all over uh, the the area outside of Palestine. They had been scattered for a number of dis- uh, for a number of different reasons. Some persecution, others uh, by just simply uh, looking for a, a place to flourish as far as vocation is concerned, and just spreading out. So believers that were of the Jewish faith were all over the countryside, and they were beginning to experience some heightened difficulties. They were beginning, if they hadn't already experienced it, they were beginning to experience some difficulties that were becoming more and more severe. And so much of what James has to say has to do with how Christians face or respond to difficulties. And we've seen, uh, right now, we've seen three different ways, uh, or we're seeing three different ways that we approach difficulty. The first one was very counterintuitive. James called believers to face difficulties with joy. And that just really went against the grain of our life because we don't like to be under trial. We don't like to be under pressure. But James says what we need to do is embrace these trials, embrace these pressures, embrace these difficulties with joy. Anybody remember how we do that? If you were here that first week, you remember how we do it? Anybody want to brave how we face trials with joy? Remember? Y'all going to make me do it, aren't you? You remember? Woohoo! Yes! And all the kids are awake. And maybe even Cannon is awake now this morning. And we go, when have we ever embraced trials with that kind of joy? We don't. But James says we embrace those trials with joy because we know God is working with those difficulties to do what? To strengthen us, to build endurance so that the world can bring on more and more and more and all we do is continue to stand for him. So we, we face trials, difficulties with joy. Then for the last several weeks, from James chapter 2 all the way up through last week, We've been seeing how that we face difficulties through obedience with our actions. And James has given us all kinds of different scenarios in which we might find ourselves in and, and how we are to 
act in obedience, being doers of the word and not just hearers in the face of trial and difficulty. Obedience in our actions. Now, today, we're going to see the third way that we meet trials. The third way we meet trials is something that is very, very hard for you and I. The third way we meet trials is through patience. Patience. I've heard it said because I've said it a number of times. Patience is a virtue. It's just not one of mine because we don't like to wait. I mean, think about it. How many times, and if you've gone to the McDonald's on 540 on the way to Lakeland, bless your heart, you can get there and you can pull in line and they, like I think, they go on coffee break themselves. Because you'll sit there and sit there and sit there in line and and you know what you're doing and you're like, come on, what in the world are y'all doing? Well, no wonder we ain't paying you 50. You know how we do it. Because we're not patient. I mean, we'll, we've, got, we've got more information in our pocket, access to more power right here than NASA had when they were putting people on the moon. And you know what we're doing? I mean, we're like, come on, will you load already that little spinning wheel? I mean, it'll make a, 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 just a dynamic Christian almost want to cuss because of that little pinwheel because my Facebook won't come up. It just shut. It won't, you version might not be coming up right now. I'm sorry if the, okay. Maybe our internet is down if you're trying to log on. See, bring your Bible. That's, anyway, no. <clears throat> We're impatient. We, we, we like for things to happen and we like for things to happen on our time, right? James says, well, I get it. That's just not going to be conducive to a Christian's response to difficulty. So we're going to look at James chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you were here last week, you remember that James was, he, and I, I preached to him right over here. There's nobody on the first two rows right here. And we pretended like the wicked unbelievers were sitting right here. On I, I feel like maybe some folks didn't want to sit on the front two rows. It doesn't mean you're wicked. It just happened to not be here. And we preached to the wicked, unbelieving rich last week. And we were telling them that, look, you better not count on these riches. You, you, you better not trust in what you think you've amassed because misery is coming for you who don't have faith in Jesus and are putting all of your eggs in the basket of what you have earned and the, and the money you have made and the security you've built around yourself. And we said that, that while the unbelieving rich were the ones getting scolded, everybody in the church was on the fence. You remember when we said you've ever been scolded, but you weren't the one who did it, but you were sitting on the fence when you were getting scolded and you were sitting there going, well, I don't ever want to be on the receiving end of that. It's kind of like that, what James was doing. Look, you need to realize how ineffective that riches is going to be for you all the while knowing that everybody over here is listening. Because everything running up to that point, if you'll go back with us to uh, James chapter number three, he talked about those who were departing from godly wisdom and beginning to embrace the thought process of worldly wisdom. 
You remember how he said that there comes all kinds of vile practices and, and destruction out of following worldly wisdom and how it ends up bringing about quarrels and fightings and then all these kind of things that follow on down. And, and he was on the heels of the, you who are saying, we're going to go and make a bunch of money this year and make a profit. He was letting them know what that will end up. It will give them an unbelieving mindset toward their riches. While he was scolding them, everybody here was over on the fence listening. But those over here that are on the fence listening, some of them weren't trying to amass fortunes. Some of them could not amass fortunes. In fact, some of them, if you'll just go back in your mind and remember how we concluded last week, what James says is he was saying that, that some of you are being oppressed and thrown into prison and there's nothing you can do about it because the rich own the courts, they own the lawyers, and at times they even make the laws. And so here you are as a poor believer under the oppression of the rich who seem to be able to do whatever they want to. And it's on the heels of that that he picks up this new idea of how we face difficulties and he says we do it those of you who are being oppressed those of you who are being uh, wronged by others those of you who seem to not be able to get out from under the hand of the one that's on you those of you who are experiencing what it feels like to endure injustice here's what you're to do face it with patience James chapter number five. We're going to read verse seven all the way through verse number 11. Read with me. It says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord, uh, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Verse 12 is connected, I believe, but we'll deal with that next week. Facing difficulty with joy, which doesn't make sense, but it's what God wants us to embrace. We know that we're trusting him by faith when we begin to accept and embrace trials with joy. And then we embrace and face trials with obedience, being doers of the word and it, and it being fleshed out in the activities of the life in which James has highlighted. And now we face trials with patience. We're gonna look at four movements in this passage. The first, be patient. Think about this as you face difficult. What are your difficulties right now that you're facing? You say, well, everything's, we, here's what we do. And here's how I respond. Folks will say, Kevin, how you doing today? And I'll say, some of you know that it's just, it just comes out by habit. I'll say, far as I can tell, everything's fine. 
You know what that's saying? What really I'm saying is, I don't really have time to tell you what all is bothering me. But as far as I can tell, there's nothing that I need to be home, you know, with my finger in the water pipe. And all. we know we have to, what is your difficulty? So when I say to you, how are you doing or what's going on in your life? Well, don't answer me. Just let what reality is saying to you come to the front of your mind because you're dealing with something. James says, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, if that is what you are, if by faith you've trusted Jesus as your Savior through his death and resurrection, then a Christian is to face trial and difficulty with patience. Now, James uses two words in this passage for patience. The first he uses in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 10. And that word we're going to be dealing with right now means to remain tranquil while waiting. So let's go back to the McDonald's line. Let's go back to the Walmart line when when they've got a thousand shoppers and all of them are checking out at the same time. And they have three checkout folks and the lady in the uh, jewelry aisle just doesn't seem like she wants to have because I know y'all go there. I do too. See if she'll check me out. And you're standing there and you're beginning to fume. This word for patience means remaining tranquil. I don't know where your tranquil place is. Maybe it's on the beach where you post the picture of your toe. Why do we do that? Why do we post pictures of our toes? Feet are ugly, people. Let's quit doing that. That's, that's not cute. It's not cool. It's really disgusting. Feet are, where's your tranquil place? It may be in the mountains. You post that as well with the coffee mug and the steam coming up as, as it's on the, you know, the ledge of the front porch. And, you know, it's like my happy place, hashtag, or whatever it is. Maybe it's in a tree. Maybe it's in a tree knowing you're not going to see any kind of animals. You're just happy to be there. Maybe it's shop. You know where your tranquil place is. Grandkids, wherever it's at, that's the kind of thinking that God wants to produce in us. That's the kind of response that God wants to produce with us when we're facing trials. And it's not because we're glad trials are there. It's not because they're comfortable. It's not because we would have ordered it that way if we would have been doing the choosing. But it's because our trust in him is so secure and so grounded that we just sit back and go, I'm with you, Lord. So he talks about this idea of patience, being tranquil while waiting. But it's a word that's broken into two parts. The Greek word is broken into two. One meaning long and the other meaning heated. So it's, it's, it's a, a long heated, long tempered. Many of us would fall under the category of short tempered. Even the folks that are patient in your family, one of you is more patient than the other. There's still something that triggers you. There's still a short fuse in there somewhere. But James is saying we need to be long-tempered, tranquil in the face of difficulties, not retaliating when we are wronged. Now, here's a problem with our society. We are so uh, ingrained in rights, my rights, you're not stepping over my rights, that I mean we will roll up the sleeves and assume the 1920s position when our rights are being threatened. 
See, that's a problem for Christians. Because nowhere in there does God say, be tranquil unless someone begins to invade your space. And when they invade your space, baby, you better just come unglued and you got me on your side. Not in there. Not in there. He says, I want you to face difficulty even when you are done wrong. And some of these folks were being done wrong in a, in a big way. Some of these folks were being oppressed by folks who just had more money than they had. James says, here's what you do. Be patient. Be tranquil. But it's not based on just, I'm just going to be tranquil. No. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, what? Until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming. What am I doing? I'm just sitting back and I'm letting God be God in this scenario where things are uncomfortable and they're frustrating and they're aggravating. But I'm going to sit back and be patient because I know that any time the Lord will return. And when the Lord will return, he'll bring to completion everything he's started. I know when the Lord returns, he's going to handle everything that's going on around me. When the Lord returns, justice will be served. I don't have to worry about it. Now, I'm not saying go from here and say, Pastor Kevin said that you ought not follow through on the opportunities that our law does. You know, you just let somebody build on your property. I'm not saying that you don't take advantage of the laws that are in place. I'm saying you don't make it your determination to defend you be patient you represent christ knowing that he soon will come it's this word right here it says until the coming it actually is the word parousia which we've studied a number of times in this church which means that that idea of the return of Jesus everything included in his return you say does that mean the rapture is that the second coming it's everything together now at this church we have a specific understanding of how we think those events are gonna you know they're gonna come about and you can find that in our doctrinal statement. But that doesn't mean that you got to believe that the order of stuff is what it is if you're going to be a part of our church. It just gives you an idea of knowing what we're thinking. Bottom line is, is Jesus returning? Is Jesus coming back to bring to completion what he started and to rule in whatever way he's going to do that? If the answer to that question is yes, then well, we're brothers, we hug it out. He says that's the anchor point that you're to put your patience on, the coming of the Lord. So many of us go through trials with this understanding. We have this understanding that God is going to fix this thing in my life. That's the promise that I have from Jesus that if I ask of him in prayer, he's going to fix this thing. You know, God can fix things. You know that? God can heal bodies, God can transform lives, God can, can bring about miraculously. Did you know, if you read the Old Testament, you'll learn that, that God can, can shut the mouth of a hungry lion, God can split waters so that millions can go across on dry ground, God can actually stop the sun and turn the world back a little bit if he wants to. He made it, he's holding it together, he's got the ability. God can do anything he wants to. 
The only thing we've got to remember is that he never promises to fix things like we want him to when we expect him to. What he says is, I'm in control. Nothing will affect your life that I'm not aware of and that I'm not capable of using to build your faith and to increase your endurance. And in fact, that thing that's in your life that is so painful and hurtful right now may be the very thing that brings him the most glory through you in this life. I'll give you exhibit a Jesus hanging on a cross, dying, not for any reason of his own, other than he loved you and wanted to pay your price and mine. And God says, look at this and understand that in this sinful world, there are going to be difficulties that you're going to need to face with patience, not that I'm going to fix it tomorrow, but that it will eventually be addressed when Christ returns. So be patient. What's the example? He says, think about the farmer. Y'all know about farming. We don't know farming. Some of you know farming, but probably most of you don't know farming, even in our culture. None of us understand farming in the Middle Eastern culture. The area of Palestine is a dry, crusty existence. I mean, it is dusty. The ground is hard. It is difficult to bring about any kind of crops in that scenario. Thank you very much, Adam and Eve. Because the sweat on your brow is going to be immense if you're trying to grow something in Palestine. And here's one of the things they had to do. They had to make sure that the seed was in the ground before the early rains coming in October and November. They needed to be in the ground and covered over so when the early rains came, the seed would soak up every ounce of that water. And then... From, from November all the way to the end of February, rain would be scarce. And I mean, the farmer could irrigate maybe a little if the creeks weren't dry and the rivers were available. Maybe they could get a little bit of moisture, but it wasn't much they could do as they waited on the latter rains. You see, they had to have the seed in the ground so it would get that first rain, but then there was a dry spell followed by March, April, the latter rains would come. And I'm telling you, if those rains didn't come, those seeds weren't going to sprout and the farmers were completely at the mercy of the one who brings the rain. James says, you know how they do that? And they just go, Lord, the crop and our existence is on you. There's nothing that I can do from December to February, but just trust and wait. James says, that's how I want you. You know what God's going to do is on him. All the farmer can do is wait. And I'm telling you, as a follower of Jesus, if you want to glorify him in your life through difficulty, embrace it with joy, embrace it with obedience, and then just keep calm while we wait on Jesus to return. But keeping calm, being patient, is so contrary to our way of daily thinking that we're hearing it and we're nodding it, but honestly... Do we even know how to do it? Be patient.
Verse number eight. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Face difficulty by being patient. A part of that is establishing your heart. This word establish, it means to make fast, to strengthen, to confirm, to anchor. It's a resolute determination to face trials that are sure to come in the light of how they are described being temporary and what has been promised that God is with us and will bring it to completion. It is a resolute determination that I know this is coming and I know it's not going to be comfortable, but I know what God has said is this is only temporary. I know what God has said. This is for my good. I know what God has said. He's going to be with me. I know what God has said that even if it completely overtakes and kills me, I know where I'm going and I know that ultimately Christ is returning. This is what happened in Luke chapter nine, verse 51, where the writer says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, talking about Jesus, he set his face on Jerusalem. Jesus set his face on the mission that God had sent him on. He knew that was going to be difficult. He knew that was going to be painful. He knew that was going to be, uh, it, it was going to be embarrassing. It was going to be undeserved. And what did he do? He determined himself toward Jerusalem. Nothing's going to keep me from doing what I've come to do. You know, that really, this is just a little side note. That is what the marriage covenant is supposed to be. You're not just standing there saying, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to love you as long as you don't change. We're all going to change. Things are going to be different. But that covenant, that prompt, that resolute determination says, I'm with you and I'm with you till the last breath out of me or you. That's the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus showed us what that resolute determinant, I'm going, I set my faith, I established my heart. I put it to anchor. But what do we establish our heart toward? Establish your heart, what? For the coming of the Lord, what does it say? is at hand. Now, let me tell you something. Paul, James, Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews, and John, just to name a few, all spoke of the return of Jesus as though they expected it to happen in their life. But he didn't. So were they wrong? No, they weren't wrong. What they were communicating was that Jesus' return is imminent. That means it could come at any time. You pick up a book and you start reading. I know some, some of y'all really like end times, prophecy and things. Like that. If you pick up a book and you start reading and that writer starts telling you things that have got to happen before Jesus can return, I'm going to tell you what to do with that book. You close it and, you know, give it to me. I'll make sure that it gets to the right place because that's just not true. Nothing has, to, in fact, when Jesus went up in the, in the looking of those disciples and those angels said, what are you doing staring up into the sky? That same Jesus is going to come back as he promised. There's no reason Jesus could not, y'all have seen kids run suicides in basketball practice. They run down, they touch the line, they run back. Touch. There's no reason that Jesus couldn't run up, touch the line of glory and run right back and got him. You say, wait a minute, I thought the Holy Spirit was going. Yeah, he brought him with him. There was nothing hindering Jesus from coming back. And they knew that. 
Jesus could come back at any time because all of the things that the scripture talks about need to be in place for those end times have always been right here in this time at which they lived. Jesus could have come back in any time at in any age. You realize he could come back today? But we fall into the slumber of, well, he hasn't come back yet, so maybe, don't do that. What did he say? Surely I come quickly. And what did John go? Come on, Lord Jesus, come quick. He could come back today. And that is what we are to establish our hearts. That is what we're to anchor ourselves to. Is that what we anchor ourselves to? Not so much. But he said, if you're going to be patient, your heart has got to be anchored to the promised return of Jesus, to the imminent return of Jesus. How how did the first church do that? How did the first believers establish their heart? They did it in four ways. Look here, Acts chapter 2, verse number 42. And they, talking about those disciples plus all of those who were believers at that time, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. It was the apostles' teaching of the Old Testament and how they related to the Christ and how they were to order their lives according to the promises that had been fulfilled through Jesus crucified and risen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here's how they established their heart in the return of Jesus while we're waiting so that we can be patient, so that our minds and our hearts will be set. They committed themselves and devoted themselves to four things, to God's word, to prayer, to fellowship, and to communion. What does God's word say? How are we to put it to practice? How are we to live it out? They devoted themselves to prayer, talking to God and, and coming together and pouring out their hearts and then trusting that he heard them and they can keep going to fellowship. This is not getting together and hanging out. This is not just coming together and, and you know, bringing barbecue. And whatever. That's not what fellowship is. Fellowship is us being together and sharpening one another with the truth. Looking at one another at times and going, you know what? You, you can't do that, brother. Sis, you can't, you can't act that way. You can't say those kinds of things. And, and being willing to allow one another to hold our feet to the fire of the fact that we've got a job to do because Christ could be returning at any point. And then communion, getting together and breaking the bread and remembering the death because he said, keep doing this till I return. And as a reminder, you keep doing that. First Peter 5.10 tells us, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, and it's this word strengthen that is the same word as establish. Strengthen and establish you. So as we establish our hearts through devoting ourselves to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship, authentic community, and to communion, coming together and remembering, setting our minds and hearts on the return of Jesus, God says, and and then the God of, of your soul will himself strengthen and confirm and establish you. How do we face difficulties as a believer? Through joy, through obedience, with patience. Having our hearts anchored in the imminent return of Jesus. 
And then what he says is, verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This word grumble, though we don't need a definition, I'll tell you what it means in the scripture. It means to express discontent, to complain. Right now, you're thinking about the complainer in your life, the one who complains. And, and here's, the, here's the bad news. Somebody else is thinking about the complainer in their life, and it's probably you because we all wrestle with complaint. When we don't get what we want, when we want it, like we thought it ought to be, what do we do? We grumble and complain. It reminds me of what Israel did as God's bringing them out of Egypt and he's splitting water. God brought them out of Egypt with most of the Egyptian stuff and they were invited to leave with all those riches and then splits the water, lets them go across, brings them to the mountain, wants to have communion with them and fellowship with them. And all they wanted to do was complain and grumble about what they had to eat when they were slaves. It kind of reminds me of their complaining and grumbling. This is a little different. He says, don't grumble against one another. Against one another means one of two things and maybe a combination of the two. It's a, it's a complaining to others because of my difficulty or it's a blaming or a desire to blame others for my difficulty. And maybe it's a combination of the two. Facing difficulty and what comes out of me is complaining. Why? Because I don't deserve this. This ain't right. This ain't fair. Or finding somebody to blame your trouble on. And here James goes, look, Grumbling and complaining and blaming is not even in the same hemisphere with patience. Here's how you know when someone is not facing difficulty with patience, they are grumbling. But it's common, and it's common in people, you ready, who are accustomed to comfort and a sense of entitlement. And you know who that is, class? Every one of us, we're accustomed to comfort. And quite frankly, we think we deserve what we have. And that leads to complaint and blame when difficulties come along. Here's what you need to do. You need to find somebody that you can vent to. And probably... Some of you vent to your spouse, and, and that can be good, but sometimes that can get a little long in the tooth. You know, if it's just always you know, coming to me, all you want to do is complain to me. Here's what you need to do. You need to find somebody that you can vent to. And that person needs to be somebody that you trust, that you can say whatever you need to say and know that they'll love you and they'll give you a chance to just get it out. And, but that person needs to be someone who, once you've gotten it out, will say, are you done? It doesn't need to be someone who goes, you know what, brother, you're right about, no, no, don't get one of them. That's a gossip partner. You need to find somebody you can vent to that when you're done, they'll go, okay, <laughs> wow. All right, are you done? And you go, yeah, I think I'm done. You go, all right, well, let's talk about this in light of God's word. 
And you go, I don't want nobody like that. I know you don't. But that's what you need. Because you need to get it out. Oh, here's a better way. Won't you just tell God what you think? You go, I can't talk to God like that. Well, he hears everything else you're saying. Why not talk to him? Find somebody that you can get it out to. And then we'll help you to put those pieces in the right order with the right thinking. And that will tell you, okay, we've already talked about this. Now it's starting to sound like you're grumbling and complaining. And you're wanting to blame someone. Don't, don't do that. James tells us why. He says, because that same Lord who is coming, and we're counting, we're establishing our hearts. We're, we're being patient because the coming of the Lord is near. He's right there on the threshold and he's ready to come. And James says, and don't forget, not only is he coming to put things in order and deal with those who are his enemies, but he's coming to settle accounts with us as well as a brother as the king and the last thing you want to do is face the judge having not addressed trials in the way he's made possible for you it's kind of like what we do in our home or don't do you have friends over to your house and they're like hey we need to do this lesson mom's gone you love know, and you go uh-uh because mom's coming back and i promise you she'll come back when we're in the middle of this you, you, you are you afraid of that because mama's going to destroy you no but you're afraid that she might snap and you're just like i don't want to deal with that jesus is not coming back to judge your sin But he is going to come back and he is going to evaluate how we have lived for him as his, as, as his redeemed. And we don't want to face him with grumble and complaining and blaming on our lips. So be patient, establish your heart. Don't grumble. In verse number 10 and 11, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those to be blessed. The Old Testament prophets, the ones who who faithfully were the mouthpiece of God, suffering for for speaking in the name of the Lord. Think about Elijah. Elijah was chased after by King Ahab and Jezebel just for speaking the word of the Lord. They wanted to put him to death. He was on the run from them. Think about Jeremiah. God told him when he started preaching, I've called you when you were in the womb and I'm going to use you, but guess what? Nobody's going to listen to you. Like, well, thank you, Lord. I bet there's some pastors that have been called to some churches where they thought, should my name have been Jeremiah? I don't feel that way. You guys respond. But I bet there's some out there who say, I keep saying they won't listen, God. He said, think about Ezekiel. Read the book of Ezekiel and look at some of the things that God had him do. Weird stuff. Like he was just strange little action plays that he had to do to demonstrate. I, I'm just saying, of all the prophets, I wouldn't have wanted to have been Ezekiel. I'd have been like, Lord, I really got to do that. Think about their suffering and the way they stayed patient through all that God called them to do. And then what about John the Baptist? Also a prophet of the old covenant. Off with his head for doing what? Speaking in the name of the Lord. Think about them. 
In Hebrews 11, it talks about how their faith, it set them apart. But you know what the end of that book or end of that chapter 11 says? All of those, they were blessed and their faith was seen. But guess what? They didn't even receive the promise. They went to their grave expecting Messiah to come and none of them saw him. But you know what they remained? Patient, steadfast, devoted to the task at hand. Think about that. And then think about Job. You have heard, verse number 11 says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job was stripped of, think about this, Job was stripped of his children. Job was stripped of the wives and husbands of his children, very likely his grandchildren. Job was stripped of his business. Job was stripped of all of his employees except the few who were able to come back and report to him what had happened. Job was stripped of his health. Job was stripped of his reputation. His friends assumed he must be living in sin. Job was stripped of his friends and he was stripped of the encouragement of his bride. Job, can we say, lost everything. And you go, yeah, but doesn't doesn't Job's story talk about him complaining? You know what? He was honest about his confusion, but you know what he never let hold of? His firm loyalty to the God he knew. He said, well, I don't get it. I don't understand. I wish you would tell me, but he never left, let go of his faith toward the God, having lost everything. And what was the purpose? He said, you even know the purpose because of the story. You know what we see? We see God's purpose for his suffering. Here's what it is. To build Job's faith. Man, God let all of that happen to build Job's faith. To prove a point to Satan. Satan came to God and said, hey, or I'm sorry, let me back up. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Like, like God invited the enemy to take a shot at his servant. And what did Job do? He held on. And what did God do? He blessed you. Read toward the end of the book of Job, you find out that he had more children. He had more business and more wealth than he ever had. Is that to say that if you you trust God that he's going to bring it all back to you in this life? No, but it does paint the picture of a God who ultimately rewards those who faithfully encounter difficulty with a patient confidence in the one who called them. We see his mercy, we see his compassion, we see his future blessing. Be patient, establish your heart, don't grumble against each other. Think about those who have been patient before you, most specifically our Lord and Savior who walked the road that led only to pain and suffering and he saw past that for the glory that he could bring about in you and in me. And there's coming a day when he returns that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And that's what we lock our eyes on.
That is what we anchor our patience to while we obediently wait and remain engaged in what God has called us to. In 1939, the minister of the British Ministry of Information created a sign. Britain was was very much vulnerable to um, the onslaught of the Nazi war machine. And the British Ministry of Information created a sign with a crown at the top. I should have found a visual. You've seen all of these. It said, keep calm and carry on. Those of you who follow social media uh, in this decade, you've seen, and it has a little crown at the top, and it says, keep calm, but the memes say, keep calm, drink coffee. Keep calm, shop Amazon. Keep calm and whatever, all kinds of vile practices that we're supposed to do. It's, it's a play on it. And in fact, what I was able to, to research online says that really probably not a lot of people in Britain saw that or remembered those things. Keep calm and carry on. What was the point? The, 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 the Brits were trying to encourage their people. I know what's out there and it's ugly and it's big and it looks like that it could destroy us. Now, could it? <laughs> you bet your life it could have. But what did they say? We're not going to look at it that way. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep calm. We're going to carry on. That was putting their trust in their military and their allies. But what they were trying to encourage their people is to don't panic. People, look, keep calm, carry on. Why? Because if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive it that way where I am. You'll be also, oh, but what about now? Got that covered too. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Oh, but what if I, what if I can't find you? I got that covered. I'll send another comforter who not only will be amongst you, he'll be in you. He'll lead you in the way. So what, what, what do we have to worry about? Not one blooming thing. What can we do in the face of trials? We can embrace it with joy. We can embrace it with obedience and we can Keep calm, carry on, stay patient. Make sense? Let's stand. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. Father, we are not a patient people. We are a people who worry in the face of trial. We are a people who get uh, angry in the face of trial. God, we are a people who want to retaliate when we feel like we're being, re- we're being treated unjustly. God, we are, are a people that grumble and complain when things aren't working out like we wish they would. We're a, we're a, we're a people who absolutely seem to forget the fact that Christ has won the battle and the war is already won. We forget that he's returning. We get our eyes set on the things that are around us rather than the one who has made that precious promise to us. I pray that you'll help us today to get a glimpse of the return of Jesus. 
We don't know what it's going to look like. We certainly don't know when it's going to be. But we know it's going to happen. And so I pray that you will help us to anchor, anchor our hearts to the return of the Lord. I pray that you'll give us the courage to, instead of complaining, praising. Instead of blaming, encouraging. God, I pray that you will reignite a fire in your people. Trust you completely. God, I pray for that one who may be here today that that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. Father, I pray that you will impress upon them strongly that should Jesus return today and they're not part of the family, they can only expect to be recipients of your judgment. That's not your desire for them, and I pray that you will help them to recognize their sin, their inability to address their sin, and that you would draw them to yourself. That they would see Jesus crucified in their place for their sin. That they would see Jesus risen in victory because you accepted his sacrifice as sufficient for them. That they would see Jesus ascending up into glory with promises that he wants to use us as witnesses for him while we wait his return. And I pray that you will help them to see Jesus returning to receive them if they will by faith trust Jesus and only him as their savior. I pray that you will draw their hearts. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, nobody's looking around. Maybe that's you today that you say, Pastor Kevin, I, I don't know Jesus as Savior. I, I know about him, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever trusted him. If that's you, nobody's looking. I'm, I'm the only one. Our prayer partners are up here. They're, they're looking, but they're, they're with me. Maybe that would be you, and you would say, I'd really love to know Jesus today. If, if that's you, would you just look up here at me? Christian, trials are going to come. You're probably already feeling them in some way and form, coming in various, various ways. How are, you, how, how are you addressing those trials? With joy? With obedience? patience that's our call that's our opportunity and that's a possibility because of the one who lives within us may we walk his way so God we pray that uh, as we leave from here today that we will be uh, folks equipped and ready to walk with patience don't have to help us God because that's not what we're used to doing we know you want to we know you will so we thank you in advance for what you're going to do open up opportunities for us to to share our faith with others this week give us an opportunity to encourage someone who's hurting may the patience that you produce in our life be a light and a representative 
to those who see us this week. First in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen.